Our next speaker is Dan Lieberman from Harvard University, and he'll be giving a talk entitled The Evolution and Relevance of Human Running. It's important to remember that uh, humans have several gates, right? We, um, we've been talking a lot today about walking, but also humans run. And there's two ways of thinking about running. There's uh, endurance running, which is generally within an aerobic threshold, so um, something you can do repeatedly over long distances, um, uh, burning oxygen. And then there's sort of a continuum, but not completely up to sprinting, which is basically running as fast as you can, and that's, of course, anaerobic. Now, most of what we've been talking about so far today has been walking, and for very good reason. Walking is a very important gait, and as we've been uh, discussing, that uh, the evolution of walking was incredibly important early on in the, in the evolution of hominins. In fact, it may be the defining feature of what makes a hominin. And sure, there are debates about just kind of what kind of walking these early, earliest hominins did, and to what extent these hominins engaged in walking and climbing, um, but that's not in debate, that walking was very important. And there's a number of good reasons for that. Uh, in terms of uh, just bipedal posture, it's important for feeding. And as, uh, as Chris Ruff just mentioned, we also know that um, humans, when we walk, actually spend about a quarter of the energy to move a, a kilo of our body mass a given meter than a chimpanzee, walking either bipedally or, or, or quadrupedally. But when we became walkers, we paid some prices, right? And the biggest price is that once we got up on two legs, we lost the ability to gallop. So we became slow, and we became unsteady. So a typical chimpanzee can run actually twice as fast as the world's fastest human, Usain Bolt. And they're much more agile. They're much less likely to fall over, even while doing remarkable acrobatic maneuvers in trees. So humans um, uh, aren't so good at sprinting. Even so, sprinting must have been very important in human evolution. We saw in some earlier slides, I couldn't find any pictures of Australopiths being chased by, by lions, but this guy is certainly being chased by a lion. You can imagine it's a big selective disadvantage, and if any of you have been crazy enough to get drunk and run in the streets of Pamplona with those bulls, you realize just how stupid it is to try to run um, uh, even as fast as a human being can run with an animal like that running behind you. Bulls can run a lot faster than human beings. Um, and also they've got these nasty horns. Um, so um, you never catch me doing that. But what we're really good at is endurance running, right? And by endurance running, uh, we generally have a kind of cutoff point, but we, we consider it arbitrarily to be uh, distances longer than five kilometers. You're doing an anaerobic capacity. And it's the kind of running you can do repeatedly, day after day after day. And today, of course, millions of people like to run. Uh, marathons, for, uh, almost a million people this year will run a marathon. And they're not all crazy, by the way. They, they, a lot of them actually love to do it over and over again. And I think it reflects not just a, a desire to get fit and raise money for charity, but also because we have some special human abilities. And today I'd like to talk about how, how, how and why we evolved those abilities. And that it's not just about fast uh, walking, because running is very different from walking. That it, uh, There's evidence that running was selected for in human evolution, that it played an important role in the evolution of the human body. And also, uh, something we haven't really talked about too much today, that it's actually relevant to some important health issues that we face today uh, um, as human beings. So first, I'd like to talk about how good we are at endurance running. Then I'd quickly like to talk about when and why it involved. And finally, uh, briefly mention its relevance to human health. So an important point to, to note is that even average human beings, even Al Roker and these various celebrities and presidents, are actually quite remarkable at our abilities to run long distances. And I want to give you a few examples of, uh, of data criteria to judge just how good we are. 
So a first uh, criterion is distance. How, how long can humans run uh, long distances? Now, uh, if you look at uh, social carnivores, which are the major animals out there that tend to run long distances, there's actually very few animals that like to do endurance running naturally. So hyenas and hunting dogs and wolves typically run between about 10 and 15 kilometers a day, if you look at the, at the, at the literature. Um, you can make horses and dogs run long distances. They're, of course, also remarkable quadrupeds. And they're really long distances. If you actually do horrible experiments, people used to do this back in the 1930s. Uh, um, they would put dogs on treadmills until the dogs died. And you can make dogs run at a trot uh, for about 100 kilometers. Horses can also go very long distances at a trot, um, but um, actually they can go much shorter distances when they gallop. And actually there's a lot of data which show that the maximum distance that most horses can run without starting to get injured is about 20 kilometers. And that's actually in the range of what humans can do day in, day out. Uh, average daily sort of average runners, people you know, just uh, out there just to keep fit, will run between between 5 and 15 kilometers a day. Of course, there's lots of people who run uh, 42 kilometers, uh, a million, more than a million times a year. And of course, there are humans who are now really into ultramarathons as well. So humans really, in terms of distance, match up there with some of the world's best running animals. And of course, we're not social carnivores, at least from the carnivora, and we're not ungulates. We're primates. And it's important to remember that primates actually hate to run. Chimpanzees will run about a, a, a 100 meters a day. And in fact, they don't even like to walk that much. A typical chimpanzee will walk about 2 to 3 kilometers a day. So we're we're really up there with the world's best cursors. A cursor is an animal that's selected for running. And we're actually unusual. We're remarkable compared to any other primate. Another important difference between humans and other animals is the context in which we run. So most of the animals that are good at running long distances can't do it when it's really hot. They tend to do it either at night, at dawn or dusk, or in the middle of the winter or in cold environments. Those are the kinds of conditions in which you generally find hyenas and hunting dogs running. But humans are remarkably good at running in really hot conditions. In fact, there are people who actually pay their own money to go run marathons in Death Valley. And the reason we can do that is that we, we, we cool by sweating. We're, we, you, can, you can dump about 581 kilocalories of heat per liter of sweat, and actually about 80% of your sweat typically goes into, into, um, into um, evapotranspiration. So humans are actually able to run in really hot uh, conditions um, and keep, um, and keep uh, thermoregulatory homeostasis. So we're really remarkable in the, the context. We're also pretty good in terms of speed. So this is a graph of speed on the x-axis in meters per second. And this is the human endurance range. Uh, so people can run you know, marathons basically up to about 6 meters a second. And it's important to remember that uh, if these are uh, horses, uh, ponies, and dogs, and this is a 65-kilo dog, that again, the endurance gate for these animals is a trot. Gallops are not endurance gates. And so even average middle-aged professors like me can actually run easily above the trot-gallop transition speed of a dog, my body size. I can actually run above the trot-gallop transition speed of a pony, and I'm not that great a runner. And there are lots of good runners, I'm sure there are people in this room, who can run above the trot-gallop transition speed of a full-size thoroughbred horse. So humans are actually remarkable at, at being able to run really long distances at speeds that make other animals gallop. And I'll get back to why that's an important point later on. Uh, Chris Ruff also mentioned about costs, that we're very efficient in terms of walking. We're actually not that bad in terms of running. There's some old data from the, from, uh, from the back of the 1970s where people said that humans were really costly at running, but actually that turned out to be based on one Italian guy. When they started measuring some more Italian guys, it turned out that we, we actually fall right on the line. So this is body mass against the cost of transport, so joules per kilo per meter. And as you can see, as animals get bigger, they get more efficient, and humans are pretty much right along the vertebrate line. We're up there with horses and, and antelopes and running birds like that. We're actually quite efficient at running. 
And one of the cool things about human running is that uh, once, so walking has what's called a U-shaped cost of transport. So as you walk, you have an optimal speed, which is more or less determined by the length of your leg, because you use your leg like a pendulum. But as soon as you start running, you use your leg like a spring. It's called a mass spring gait. And when we run, we're actually so good at using our legs as springs that as we speed up, the cost doesn't increase up until we start sprinting. So actually, there's a, almost a flat, very slightly U-shaped curve, which means that if you run uh, from here to LA at three meters a second, or four meters a second, or five meters a second, you actually spend the same amount of energy. And the only other animal for which we know that's the case are kangaroos. So we're actually remarkable also in terms of our cost of transport. And then finally, this is what something I take pride in as I'm getting older and older, but we're really good at longevity. This is the famous Johnny Kelly who ran the Boston Marathon for many years. Now, he won it when he was 26-year-old. He ran 2.14. Um, but he actually stayed within 20% of his, of his speed, and this is actually typical of most runners, up until he was in his 50s. In his late 50s, he was still running sub-three-hour marathons, and people can run marathons up until they're 100 years old. This is a guy named, uh, I think his name is Mike Richards or something, Peter Richards from England, who's now 100 years old and still running marathons. And um, we're really good at running long distances late into life. So I hope I've convinced you that we're really actually remarkable in our capabilities. And every year they have these man versus horse races. And they have them in Wales. You know, you can imagine a bunch of drunken Welshmen having a pint in a, in, a, in a pub saying, but you can't outrun a horse. And so they started this race. They've been having it every year. And on most years, the horses do win. But on, on occasionally, the humans actually do win, especially in the, in the warm years. They also have these races in Arizona. And by the way, I should say that when the humans run against the horses, the horses are required to have veterinary checkups every 20 kilometers, not the humans. They don't worry about the humans getting injured. So we're, I hope I've convinced you that we are remarkable at long-distance running, not only compared, especially compared to other primates, but also compared to some of the nature's best runners. And so these capabilities then demand an explanation. And so the questions they raise is, why are we so good at this? And also, when did we become so good at this? And unfortunately, I only don't have enough time to talk about the when. But the important point is that I think that we, we didn't evolve just only to, to, to walk in human evolution, but run running was added, and the best guess that we have is that it occurred at some point and in some way over this very complex transition that other speakers have already talked about between Australopithecus and Homo. And, and, and we, as, as other speakers have emphasized, and I totally agree, this is a very complex transition. It didn't happen like that. Uh, there's a lot of variation. Uh, one, one can't really characterize yet really what happened over the course of this transition, but we know that we went from uh, smaller bodies to bigger bodies, smaller brains to bigger brains, smaller teeth to bigger teeth, and there was also some shifts in locomotion, how, for example, we lost uh, some arboreality across this transition. And um, the hypothesis that uh, Dennis Bramble and I have suggested is that when you look in the fossil record, you start seeing lots of features in the skeleton of Homo erectus that look like they're adaptations for running. And again, I don't have time to talk about that today, but the way in which we assess these adaptations are looking, looking for features that are relevant to the differences between walking and running. So again, as I said before, in walking, you use your leg like an inverted pendulum. You basically uh, plant your leg on the ground, and then your body center of mass goes up and over over that leg, but in running you use your body like a spring. Your center of mass actually falls during the first half of stance, and you're storing up lots of elastic energy as springs in the tendons of your legs, and, the, uh, uh, and, and you, that helps push you up in the air. So we can look for evidence for those mass spring uh, features. Uh, another major difference between walking and running is that walking is much more stable than running, and so runners are much more likely to fall over, as you probably all know, and so there's lots of interesting adaptations in the human body for stabilization. So we start 
looking in the fossil record, we see a lot more of these features uh, in Homo erectus. Now, does that mean that Australopithecines couldn't run? Of course not. I'm sure they could run. Um, does that mean that Homo erectus was as good as a modern human? We don't know. It's very hard to assess that. But it looks like that there's some uh, importance to that transition in terms of running. And it kind of makes sense from an ecological perspective. Uh, uh, Brian Richmond referred to this as well, but we know that over this time period, there was major shifts in the environment of Africa. We know that around 2.8 million years ago, the ice sheet started forming, right? So the, 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 the glacial era started. And in Africa, that was manifested by an increased drying out of the environment. Um, so we know that there was sort of basically more open habitats uh, as this transition went on. And of course, that would have had major effects on, the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on how humans got their food, right? And how they, how they used the environment. And so there seems to be sort of two coincident solutions to this kind of climate change. So one group of critters, which evolved around 2.6 million years ago, are the robust Australopithecines. And these are creatures with really huge teeth and big chewing muscles, and they look like they're adapted to eat very mechanically demanding, maybe fallback foods, you know, the less desirable foods. And they probably walked around all day long chewing, 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 right? Um, but at the same time, or more or less the same time, uh, we see the origins of the genus Homo. And there's lots of features in the genus Homo which suggests that we switch to a more high-quality diet and a very different kind of diet. We have smaller teeth and etc. And so that, and, 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 and in fact, not just shifts in diet, but it's just an overall shift in behavior. This is really the origins of hunting and gathering, right? We know that we have the beginning of stone tools and food processing, which increases the amount of energy you can get per unit of food. We know that there, there's, there's a good chance there's a more cooperation and food sharing. We know that ranging patterns must have increased. There's lots of ways of trying to figure that out, but typical hunter-gatherers walk and, or run between 9 and 15 kilometers a day. That's a big shift from probably what happened earlier. And of course, we have the incorporation of meat in the diet. These, we have these early bones which have cut marks and they've been open and broken open for the marrow. And we know that by two million years ago, there are archaeological sites which have uh, skeletons of animals that really look like those animals were hunted. Big, large animals, very complete skeletons. So that raises the question that during the shift, as humans start uh, changing their diet, including incorporating meat and, and changing their ranging patterns, when they were getting meat, how did they do it? How did they hunt, right? What was the behavior necessary for humans to hunt? Now, this is actually not so easy proposition. If any of you go on safari and you decide to get out of the jeep and you want to try to kill a wildebeest or a kudu, um, you might actually have a challenging time. And you'd probably want to use some weaponry. But it turns out that most of the weapons, the te projectile technology that we think that humans would use, actually weren't invented then. The stone Putting a stone point on the end of a spear was actually invented less than 300,000 years ago. Maybe 400,000 years ago. I see Sally McBurdy there, but it's, it's, it's certainly not 2 million years old, right? Further, remember, you can't just chase these critters. Your typical African ungulate can run about 20 meters a second, can do so for about four minutes. Usain Bolt, who's the fastest human alive, can run 10.4 meters a second, and he can do that for about 10 seconds. If he runs a little bit slower, he can run for 20 seconds. After 30 seconds, he's all out. Usain Bolt will have no chance whatsoever uh, capturing like a kudu or something like that. So how did they do it? Well, I gave you some of the clues earlier. One is that humans are able to run, again, at speeds that make animals like the size of ponies have to trot. That's very important. And the other important point is that when animals gallop, okay, 
um, they can't pant. So you cool, I cool, primarily by sweating. We basically squirt water all over our bodies. We basically turn our bodies into great big giant tongues, right, which we can lose a huge amount of, of, of heat. But when quadrupeds gallop, and a galloping gait is a kind of a tilting, sort of seesaw motion. And there's some elegant studies which show that as soon as quadrupeds start to gallop, their guts start to slosh like, like giant piston engines into their diaphragm. And so quadrupeds cannot pant and gallop at the same time. If you don't believe me, take your family dog for a run, make the dog gallop, but please don't do it for too long on a hot day. You'll kill the dog. So the combination of these two features, the fact that we can run at speeds that make animals gallop and the fact that animals cannot thermoregulate properly when they're galloping gives us the possibility of doing something called persistence hunting. And persistence hunting uh, is, occurs usually in the middle of the day when it's really hot, and runners will pick an animal, and usually they'll pick the biggest animal possible because, just like humans, bigger animals overheat faster for rules of scaling. And what they'll do is they'll chase that animal. They, they know to make the animal run at a gallop. And the animal will, will gallop away, its body heat will go up, and then it'll go hide in the bushes and try to cool down. And the runner will then track it, and then chase it again. And so through a combination of walking and running, tracking and chasing, you can actually drive an animal, here a kudu for example, into a state of hyperthermia. Now it's important to note that the runner doesn't have to run the whole time, right? They're actually walking about 50% of the time, but the ability to run at those speeds is very important, very critical in this adaptation. So here this guy can walk up to this kudu, which is dying already, and kill it without um, any real serious threat uh, to his body. So the important point about this kind of strategy for hunting is that it involves very little risk. You don't have to get up close to the animal until the animal's already dying. You don't need any serious technology, right? You don't need, you don't need any major projectile technology, which, of course, didn't exist for most of human evolution. And it actually doesn't cost us very much. A lot of people think that running is this horribly costly uh, behavior. But actually, if you were to walk 15 kilometers, you spend about 650 calories. If you want to run the same distance, you basically just add the fries to the Big Mac, which is about 650 calories. And I believe that this kind of behavior helped release a constraint on brain size. That's, that's after running, that brain size gets bigger. We don't see it very much anymore, of course, because people are now uh, don't have to do this anymore because we've invented projectile technology. If I have just a few more minutes, I just want to mention why I think this is important for human health. And that is because a lot of us today, I mean, look at you all, right? And I've been most of this day, we've just been sitting all day long, right? This is a very abnormal behavior. It used to be that if we were hunter-gatherers, we'd have to walk or run about 9 to 15 kilometers a day. But now exercise is really something that only the wealthy can do. It's something that, um, that's become a privilege uh, uh, for, for those who have time and money. And as we, we, we exercise less uh, um, um, and change our diet, more and more people are getting overweight. So obesity levels have doubled in my lifetime, and, and diabetes and cancer and other metabolic diseases have been increasing. And so the point, point is that we not only evolved to eat a very different diet, but we also evolved to walk and run. And as, as evidence for just how important running is for our health, um, there are many such studies, but uh, I just want to highlight one from Stanford. It's called the Stanford Runner Study. They looked at more than 500 runners, so just amateur runners, members of of runners clubs, and then matched them with 423 healthy controls. So these were not overweight people, they were not smokers, they were not drinkers, and they've been following them every year since 1984. And more than 20 years later, the runners have a 20% lower chance of dying in a given year, right? and their, their death rates from most diseases are about half out of the, those of the sedentary controls, but also they've been measuring disability, and their disability scores are about 50% lower, which translates in, into bodies that are about 14 years younger by, those, by that scale. 
So the important point then is that not only walking, but also running played a very important role in human evolution, and, and it's still important to us because it plays a major role in human health. And I think the world would be a far better place if not only more of us walked a lot, but also if lots of us ran a lot as well. And um, hopefully more people will also start doing that barefoot, but that's another lecture. <laughs> Without that, thank you very much.